Hello, and welcome to Episode 5 of the Decarceration Nation Podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's cr- cr- criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho, former debate coach, formerly incarcerated person, criminal justice reform advocate, and author of the book, Writing Your Best Story, Addiction, and Living Hope. Uh, Newsweek Magazine reported a little over a week ago that the Trump administration has offered the transfer of more inmates and the cutting of a bunch of correctional officers from the Bureau of Prisons for the purpose of trying to increase the private prison industry, uh, who unfortunately uh, also seems to have made a lot of contributions to his campaign. So given this recent news, I can't think of a better person to be interviewing than Lauren Brooke Eisen, who's a senior counsel at the Brennan Center's Justice Center and the author of the book Inside Private Prisons, which I've had the pleasure of reading. Hello, Lauren, Lauren Brooke. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for having me on your show today. No problem. Glad to have you. Uh, I'm not so uh, sure how many people have ever gone on an odyssey to investigate private prisons all over the United States. Can you talk about how the project started and where the journey took you? Absolutely. So I work at the Brennan Center for Justice, and I'm senior counsel in our justice program. And a lot of the work that I do here focuses on examining the incentives that perpetuate mass incarceration. And some of these incentives are unintentional, such as um, even the performance measures attached to grants that are sent to states, you know, looking at what sorts of questions are asked of law enforcement when they use federal grant dollars. And do those questions, such as how many drugs seized, how many guns seized, how many arrests are made, um, do those questions incentivize police to arrest and incarcerate more people? And this project really grew out of that work. I've always been interested in this intersection of profit and incarceration. And before I really um, sort of dug my heels into this project, I uh, spoke to Director Ramish, who's the um, director of corrections in Colorado. And I said, you know, I'm interested in looking at the private prison industry and I'm having a really hard time getting into the facilities. Um, I, I, I tried to get access to these facilities through CoreCivic and was really struggling. And he said, come on down and I'll take you to, you know, any private prison you want to see in my state. So I spent a day with him and I, I went to a a state prison in Colorado, and I accompanied him to a private prison in Crowley, Colorado. And I spoke to a lot of the incarcerated individuals who were at this private prison and asked them about the differences and, um, you know, how they felt about being, uh, spending time in this private facility. And my work really grew out of that trip. And I've, I've, you know, always been intrigued by how we as a country have let the private prison industry become so entrenched in American corrections and detention since the mid-1980s. So for me, this was an exploration and an examination of that history, um, ultimately leading us to today when we have 29 states with private prisons, about 18% of the um, people incarcerated at the federal level in private prisons and something that a lot of your listeners may not be aware of, about 65 to 70% of um, ICE detention beds are privatized. So we've essentially privatized immigration detention in this country. You said, you mentioned that you talked to a bunch of the inmates. Uh, I noticed in your book that when you talked about the inmates, that a lot of them seemed to feel like there was a pretty 
distinctive difference between their experience in public and private prisons. Did you find that to be generally the case? I did. And I spoke to a lot of incarcerated individuals as I was writing this book. I thought, um, this is a human story. You know, while this is a historical examination, uh, my goal in writing this book was to understand and convey the impact that the private prison industry has had on incarcerated individuals, their families, um, mayors of small towns, policymakers, really everyone that a private prison touches. And a lot of the incarcerated individuals I spoke with, either on the phone, um, I wrote letters to some individuals, I opened up a JPay account and sent, you know, spent 55 cents to send an email to individuals. They would email me back. I spoke to a lot of um, family members, um, incarcerated individuals who had spent time in private prisons. And it's interesting. A lot of them said that, you know, their time in these private facilities um, was a little freer. They felt that there were less correctional officers. And, you know, that's one way that the industry makes money. They hire less staff. And they felt they weren't watched the same way. A lot of them had MP3 players, video gaming consoles, things that they weren't able to gain access to in the state facilities. Um, but I played devil's advocate with everyone I spoke to. And I said, well, what do you think about this idea um, of these corporations making money off of incarceration. And I quote a lot of these individuals in the book. And, you know, one of them said, and I'll quote from the book, we realize that someone has found a way to make money off my mistakes, my pain, my misfortune. And that right there was the biggest blow to the head. And the idea of including this perspective is that, you know, the book looks at changing incentives and reforming the industry. Um, but we also need to have conversations about the delegation of this core governmental duty, which is to clothe, care for, house so many incarcerated individuals. And, you know, what are the moral dilemmas about having a corporation perform this service? Yeah, that's uh, obviously with the, the kind of a lot of what I talk about is what we'll talk about in a little bit, the, the kind of what I call the moral hazards of corporate control, not just of the private prison itself, but also of privatization of functions within prisons. Uh, the conclusion of your book is a quote from the head of what's now called Core Civic, but I think used to be called CCA, Tom Beasley, uh, from a 1984 interview on 60, 60 Minutes, where he said, we want to stay in business for a long time. The great incentive for us, and we believe the long-term great incentive for the private sector, will be that you'll be judged on performance. So after you've gone all over the country and checked out all these private prisons, I want to ask you a few questions about how uh, private prisons perform. And I understand that you might not have very necessarily great answers to this because, as you mentioned before, private prisons are a little bit of a black box. Uh, first, oh, go ahead. Sorry. You know, you're absolutely right. When we talk about prisons in general, they're a black box. And when we talk about jails and immigration detention centers, there's so much that we, we don't know about that happens behind metal bars. And for the book, I, I conducted a literature review. I, I read the literature and the research that's been conducted since the mid-1980s on this promise, right, that the private prison industry emerged in the mid-1980s among a backdrop of, um, you know, 
increased incarceration rate, states, you know, in the mid-1980s, about three-quarters of states were under some sort of federal court order to reduce their prison populations. And the private prison industry emerged uh, against this backdrop of increased incarceration rates, um, ultimately resulting in this unprecedented growth in the prison populations. And, you know, I looked at a lot of the research. At the end of the day, it's fairly inconclusive. Uh, there are studies that indicate some private prisons have saved money. Um, the problem with a lot of those studies is that researchers have debunked them and, you know, pointed out that the cost of monitoring wasn't included in those studies and other costs weren't included in those studies. Um, ironically enough, some of the studies that, that illustrate cost savings were actually funded by the private prison industry themselves. <laughs> And, you know, the book makes the point that four decades later, you know, where is that innovation? Where is that great cost savings that the private prison industry promised so many years ago? And even Core Civic spokesman Steve Owen told the New York Times in 2011, there's a mixed bag of research out there. It's not as black and white and cut and dried as we would like. Um, so the data is pretty haphazard. And it's pretty difficult to prove that the sector is definitively cheaper than government corrections. Um, and I, you know, I reviewed dozens of studies and concluded that the results are pretty inconclusive. But I want to point something else out here. You know, the book asked the question, okay. even if the private prison industry does save money, Right. Even if it does save taxpayer money, does that validate the industry? And the reason I pose that question is because corrections should be expensive. You know, we, the, the government, has decided that someone has violated the criminal code to such an extent that they need to be removed from their families, their communities. Um, they need to be behind bars sometimes hundreds, if not thousands of miles away from their families and their friends, incarceration should be expensive. And we shouldn't be incarcerating so many people that we're looking for ways to cut costs because we can't handle the number of people behind bars. And a Brennan Center report we issued um, uh, almost a year ago found that 40% of Americans are unnecessarily incarcerated. Those are people who could receive alternatives to incarceration in lieu of incarceration and um, are just simply behind bars for too long. And, and it's important that people think about this. You know, incarceration is depriving someone of their liberty um, and keeping them from their support systems, it, it shouldn't be something that we do, you know, in a cavalier way. You know, we should be spending money on rehabilitation, programming, education behind bars. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, so I always kind of look at it as kind of what do you mean by uh, costs, you know, or what do you mean by savings? Because, the, you know, the question of recidivism, the question of public safety, the question of reentry are all also part of long-term versus short-term costs. And so has there been any kind of – and then the quote I gave, you know, I, I read above from the end of your book suggests that one of the points, at least when they started, was to ensure a better outcome. Have you found any – you know, has, has the research been definitive at all on if uh, state uh, uh, 
private prisons are doing a good job of uh, helping people reenter or uh, getting the right programming to make sure that you know so, you know safety is benefited on the in, in the end of the day. You know that's a great question, and there's no definitive um, conclusion I can make there. You know it's hard to compare jails and prisons, even government jails and prisons, to each other. You know there's some government jails and prisons with lousy outcomes, uh, with, you know, terrible track records, allegations, settlements of, you know, sexual assaults and, um, you know, inhumane conditions of confinement. Something that also makes it more difficult is that for a lot of the past four decades, the private prisons have frequently negotiated restrictions on the type of individuals they will house at their facilities. For example, limiting the admission of individuals with medical conditions. And these differences eliminate the possibility of something like a control group for comparison. But the the book, you know, when I toured a lot of these private prisons and private immigration detention centers, I always asked about the programming and the conditions of confinement. And for the most part, a lot of the private prisons just don't have the robust programming that the state prisons have. Is there a reason for that or just it, the cost? The programming or? tends to be centralized in these larger state prisons. And remember, most of the people in the private prisons tend to have, you know, less medical needs, less mental health needs. And, you know, there is programming. It's not that incarcerated people are just sitting there watching television all day. I mean, I certainly spoke to people who were getting reentry training, who were participating in Habitat for Humanity um, programs, you know, building houses while they were incarcerated. But the programming tends not to be as robust as it would be in a state prison. And the book ultimately recommends that we rewrite these contracts so that we are incentivizing the private prison industry to improve on their programming, to ensure that there's educational programming, rehabilitative programming, and that they track their recidivism rates, which is something that they're not doing today. Um, you know, the government does a lousy job of reducing recidivism. Uh, we about two thirds of incarcerated individuals who are released will return behind bars within three years. And the book makes the argument, you know, how can we not ask the private sector to do better than the government if the private sector's going to make money off of this? That makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, I also want to talk a bit about what I've been calling the moral hazards that can be created by investment in private prisons. Uh, one of them is the black box problem we talked about before. But it seemed like that private prisons have an incentive to keep all the prisoners they house and can, while continually adding more. Obviously, they're in charge of discipline inside of private prisons and they report to parole boards. Have you seen perverse outcomes that result in less parole and probation? So you hit on a really key point here uh, that the industry um, certainly creates perverse incentives that drive overcrowding by cutting costs and reducing the quality of life for incarcerated individuals. I mean, that's an argument that a lot of advocates who'd like to eliminate the industry will make. Um, and to save money and turn a profit, these companies are incented to cut costs and find efficiencies that the government officials who are hamstrung by stringent procurement laws and union contracts cannot. Um, so it is a little bit of a catch-22. You know, we have asked the, the private prisons to save the government money 
yet we've said, please mimic a lot of the government services that we're providing. Um, but we still need to innovate in a way that we're not doing. Um, and, and, you know, that that's sort of at the crux of this book is that we can't continue to rely on the private prison industry without asking them to change their incentives. Right now, they are incentivized to, you know, they make money off of more and more people behind bars. They don't make money by improving outcomes. They don't make money by reducing recidivism rates. So we really need to flip the switch on the incentives. And the book suggests that we tear up all of today's contracts at the state level, at the federal level, and we rewrite those contracts. And we say, look, you either lose this contract or this can be seen as controversial by many, but we'll, we'll pay you more if you reduce recidivism more than our government prisons in this state are doing or um, at the federal level. And that's not anything we've done in the past. In fact, I scoured the country looking to see if any states had created those incentives. None have. And my research led me to Australia and New Zealand, where the government is incentivizing these these public-private partnerships to reduce recidivism at the private prisons in a way that we're not doing. Do you feel like uh, since ultimately, if they were to reduce recidivism, and uh, you'd have a drastic, you know, ultimately, if everything worked perfectly, you'd have a drastic reduction in the prison population, which works against the bottom interest of the pe- the corporations. So do you feel like they'll be reluctant to work in that environment or that it has, uh, that they would fight back in particular ways? So that's an excellent question. And it would be a marked change from today's incentive structure that focuses on rewarding these private prison operators for building more bed capacity. But on the other hand, CoreCivic and Geo Group, the country's um, you know two largest private prison operators, they're public, publicly traded on the American Stock ex- Exchange. Uh, these two companies combined earned uh, $4.5 billion in revenue in 2016. They're starting to read the tea leaves, um, and they have been for years. And they're, in, you know, reading the tea leaves, understanding that states are starting to reduce prison populations. In fact, over the last decade, I think about twenty-six states have reduced crime and incarceration together. So what they're doing is they're di- they're diversifying into drug treatment, mental health treatment, owning halfway houses, owning ele- electronic monitoring services. So they're realizing that their future is not all, you know, hinging off of uh, keeping people locked up behind bars. And so this new incentive structure could be profitable to the industry. And restructuring these contracts around the nation's public policy goals would ensure that private operators provide more educational programming, job training, and that they prepare their individuals for successful reentry into the community and we really need to ensure that these contracts um, mirror what our public policy goals are. You know, don't do the opposite. Yeah, I think one of the reasons I first became interested in your work was based on your kind of uh, focus on outcome-based uh, budgeting uh, in terms of what uh, another thing that you wrote about the Reverse Mass Incarceration Act, which ultimately became uh, a Senate bill this year. Uh, have you... Uh, 
so you, it seems to me like you find that this is the case throughout all prisons, not just private prisons, that we need to change the incentive structures. Is that fair? We do. And it's trickier when we talk about changing the incentive structures for the government. Um, and, you know, the book states in its very early pages, we would have mass incarceration with or without the private prison industry. The private prison industry did not create mass incarceration. We have 2.2 million people behind bars in this country, more than any other country on the planet. And it's because our policies are so punitive. We send too many people to jails and prisons, and we keep them there for far too long. But we have to start somewhere and rewriting these contracts and changing these incentives and holding these corporations' feet to the fire and saying, if you want to hold these contracts, you're going to have to improve conditions of confinement, access to journalists, to families. You're going to have to comply with open records requests, which most private prisons are not required to comply with at the state and federal level. And this is easy for the government to do. It's easy to rewrite these contracts. When we talk about changing the incentives for the government, uh, that's that's a necessity as well. Um, it's just a little bit more complicated because you know we need to think very thoughtfully about how we change the incentives for government corrections. And the Second Chance Act has been pivotal in providing more resources and technical assistance to states and corrections to improve reentry outcomes for individuals. But we need to do more as a country. We re- need to reinvest. You know, we need to invest in programming. We need to invest in alternatives to incarceration if we're serious about ending mass incarceration as we know it. Yeah. Um, I want to dig a little deeper into something you said a second ago because I think it's pretty important. Uh, you mentioned that uh, unlike state and federal systems, that private prisons are often exempt from FOIA requests. Is there a reason for that? Just the way uh, the the law works is, you know, what can we do about, uh, I mean, obviously the contracting is the the solution, but can you talk a little bit more about? So the book looks at the emergence of the private prison industry in the mid-1980s. And remember, this was when Ronald Reagan was president, directors of corrections, governors, mayors, um, everyone had to be seen as tough on crime. You could not run for elected office in this country if you were seen as soft on crime. So it was a very different era. And this is the era um, when the private prison industry emerged. And the book asks, where were these inspiring debates about the proper role of incarceration and punishment? Why were these conversations so rare? And perhaps it was because so many prison facilities, so many states were under emergency court orders to reduce the number of inmates they housed, policymakers didn't feel they had the time to explore alternatives. And I think that's an important context for understanding why states and the federal government hasn't uh, enacted this legislation that seems so obvious to so many of us ensuring that these corporations are subject to the same transparency requirements that the government is. I think that's a large, a large reason why we don't have these laws today. And I'm hoping that conversations about the book and conversations about de-incarceration and the, and the role of the for-profit sector in corrections will focus on changing these laws and ensuring that states and at the federal level um, pass legislation, enact legislation, at least requiring these corporations to be subject to the same open records requests. And I think that 
didn't happen. And, you know, the, the book, one of the themes of the book is that the private prison industry sort of emerged um, quietly under the eye of, of the public without these great conversations and debates. And, you know, in the book, I, um, I write about the first congressional hearing that the private prison industry um, had on Capitol Hill in 1985. And the level of discourse during parts of the hearing was about the uniforms that the corrections officers wore at a core civic prison. And I think that illustrates just the confusion and debate um, about what it really meant to have corporations manage and run prisons. And even at the end of this hearing, you know, one of the, I think it was the head of the Judiciary Committee, ended the hearing noting that, you know, we don't know where the private prison industry will will be in the in the year 2000. Um, and there was a thought that maybe it would go away. Uh, so wow. now, you know, now with 2.2 million people behind bars and incredibly low crime rates, our crime rates peaked in 1991. Americans are safer, you know, than they've been in generations. And with the increasing fiscal cost of corrections and corrections <coughs> eating up a huge portion of the, the general funds in most states, you know, the left, the right, um, you know, we're having these trans transpartisan conversations about the need to significantly reduce the number of people who are held in our jails and prisons in this country, you know, but those conversations weren't being had. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, because of the FOIA request, sometimes they still aren't. Hopefully that'll change. Uh, when we invest in private prisons, uh, as I think we've talked about a couple of times, kind of tangentially so far, the money is not just invested in the facilities, administration, and prisoners, but it can also be used for lobbying. Uh, your book gives several examples of how the private prison industry has lobbied against criminal justice reform. As we're talking about this kind of notion of changing contracts, is that uh, how much harder is that going to be made? I know you said that they're kind of changing their models in some ways, but how much harder is that going to be made by this kind of uh, large-scale lobbying that uh, the corporations that uh, the private prison corporations uh, have the capacity to do. So the corporations on their website note that they don't lobby policymakers. They merely educate them. And there's a fine line <laughs> between education and lobbying. And if um, any of your listeners um, jump on the internet, they can see the um, education that these corporations have had with policymakers on all of the bills that um, we would expect them to be speaking to policymakers on, you know, the Justice is Not for Sale Act and all of the legislation that's been introduced on Capitol Hill to um, curb our reliance on the private prison industry or make the industry more transparent. And again, they claim they don't lobby for changes in criminal justice policy, but they do spend large amounts of money every year on lobbying firms that advocate for their financial interests in Congress and in state legislatures. Um, statewide lobbying disclosure laws vary, so it's a little more difficult at the state level um, to, to have a full understanding of all the money spent on lobbying. Um, but just as one example, 
uh, CoreCivic and its hired lobbying firms have spent a little over $21 million lobbying Congress and federal agencies from 1998 to 2014 on bills related to immigration detention and private prisons. And as some of your listeners may or may not know, CoreCivic and GeoGroup um, both gave a couple of hundred, I think it was a couple, couple hundred thousand dollars each to President Trump's inaugural committee fund. Um, GeoGroup has also given to uh, the the PAC, the political PAC, um, so supporting uh, Donald Trump's election when he was running for president. And at the state level, uh, these corporations certainly um, donate money to policymakers, state policymakers across the country. Um, and you know, specifically in Florida, GeoGroup has. Um, given money to the governor of Florida, and there are a lot of private prisons, specifically GeoGroup private prisons in Florida. Um, so there is a lot of lobbying uh, that happens um, related to the industry, and in a lot of this also happens through Alec, right? Yes, uh, and the the Alec um, Alec is interesting because you know GeoGroup and CoreCivic, you know, the private prison industry today has said that you know. They're not members of ALEC, and, and they're not anymore. Um, but at one point um, in 1995, there were um, officials from CoreCivic, you know, it was CCA at the time, who were co-chairs of the um, Criminal Justice Task Force, and one of the model bills that the task force worked on was the truth in sentencing bill. And, you know, three strikes laws and their connection to ALEC. And, you know, at the time, you had industry officials at the table drafting some of this very punitive model legislation. Um, you know, ALEC boasted that 25 states enacted truth in sentencing laws based on their model legislation. And remember, this is these are laws that require incarcerated individuals to serve 85% of their sentences in prison. Um, and until 2000, this task force was co-chaired by core civic vice president, John Rees. So there's certainly a connection um, between some of the tough on crime punitive legislation uh, that was um, pivotal in our drive towards mass incarceration. So um, you talked earlier about how, uh, you know, they're kind of moving in different directions. And it seems like that uh, a lot of the privatization that happens is beyond just the prison itself. It can be, uh, you know, how people communicate with prisoners. It can be like you talked mm -hmm. about JPay earlier. It can be food. It can be healthcare. It, you know, now a lot of people are moving to video visit only, which is securus as I as I understand it. Uh, do you have any thoughts about kind of these other kinds of prison privatization or other channels for corporate uh, uh, privatization of prisons? Yes, and I'm glad you asked about that. I, the book has a chapter called The Prison Industrial Complex. And, you know, this phrase um, became sort of in vogue as a phrase after um, journalist Eric Slasher wrote an article in 1998 in The Atlantic called The Prison Industrial Complex. And, 
there are very few government prisons that haven't privatized some aspect of their operations, whether it's healthcare, whether it's the commissary, um, whether it's video visitation, emails. And the American Correctional Association has a conference twice a year for its members. And I, um, I've been to that conference um, for many years, and there's a trade show that's part of the conference. And I sort of detail walking around that trade show for the book because I thought it, it illustrates just the vast number of companies that are making a profit off of incarceration and not just incarceration. There are companies that are making profit off of electronic monitoring and community corrections and you know, I write in the book that the prison industrial complex is alive and well. Um, you know, that their companies, their telecommunications corporations, Securus, Telmate, Global Tellink, um, there are companies like JPay. And, you know, JPay, for example, it, it's a technology company that some have called the Apple of the prison system. And, they provide video visitation, emails. Um, they let you send money to people behind bars, uh, but they profit from its services. And, you know, for example, it may cost um, $5 to transfer $20 to an incarcerated individual. And, you know, they're making money off of that. That $5 is profit for them. Yeah, and it's usually a much larger, uh, like if I were to do that transaction out here, it would be a much uh, the amount of, of surcharge would be much lower than it would be for prisoners in general. Would you agree with that? Or Absolutely. And remember, these are people who ha- may have very little money, you know, behind bars. Um, most incarcerated individuals depend on their families to send money to their accounts. And what's very scary to me, at least, is that a lot of states are eliminating in-person visitation entirely, and they're replacing it with video visitation, which is expensive. And, you know, all of the research indicates that, you know, part of incarcerated individuals being successful on reentry is being able to see and spend time with their friends and their family and sort of have that personal connection. And, you know, I spoke to a lot of individuals who said, look, the, the, the video was fuzzy. I couldn't really hear them. Or I simply couldn't afford to spend the money to have a video visitation session with a family member. And these corporations, you know, this web of complex economic incentives from prison telephone charges to architectural fees to um, electronic, um, you know, video visitation services runs deep and you know, I write in the book that the nation's prison industrial complex relies on a vast infrastructure of these financial incentives that create a significant hurdle to dismantling a mass incarceration system that we have today. And that's why this is so important, because all of these companies are incentivized to perpetuate high prison numbers. And do you feel like, as you know, as you said, as they're changing their models, that perhaps one of the outgrowths that is something we should be aware of is this kind of ongoing notion of criminal justice debt. Like for instance, if they were to privatize uh, parole functions or housing functions or whatever, that in addition to the money that 
uh, gets built up in the, the time that people are incarcerated, that these corporations will start to have almost an ongoing uh, debt load with uh, formerly incarcerated people as they reenter. It's certainly a part of why so many people suffer from criminal justice debt. You know, about 80% of people who you know, are defendants in the criminal justice system are indigent. And we know that because they qualify for indigent defense. So, you know, all of this is taxing the poorest members of our society and their families and really creating this barrier to reentry um, and criminalizing poverty. And there's certainly some connections between all these companies that are making a profit off of people behind bars or people under some sort of correctional supervision. Um, you know, they're certainly playing a role in criminalizing poverty. So I guess uh, last but not least, I saw today that uh, one of your colleagues, Ames, just put out a new report on how the Trump administration's doing. I'm changing the subject a little. Uh, how What's been happening with uh, the criminal justice of the Trump administration? Do you want to plug that a little bit? Or? Yes. So our justice program just released a report today looking at the um, changes in the criminal justice system. One year under Trump, I would... Um, you know, your listeners should definitely take a look at that report. Um, but we've certainly started to see uh, more punitive draconian policies um, in this administration. Um, you know, specifically, um, specifically, uh, you know, this book at the end, you know, comes on the heels of a spate of recent moves by the Trump administration to expand the private prison industry. He's ramped up the private sector's role in building more immigration detention centers. Um, and that's just one of the many um, changes that we've started to see under the Trump, under the Trump administration, just this, you know, um, Attorney General Sessions and President Trump have really um, launched this sort of brought back this tough on crime punitive rhetoric, you know, in the um, talking about car carnage in the streets and at a time when when crime levels are incredibly low. Um, yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> so, yeah, so you all have done a lot of work on, you know, demonstrating that the crime levels are certainly not American carnage level, right? I mean, no, no. And um, and I uh, so, so so please ho hope your listeners take a look at that report. Yeah, it looked pretty good. I haven't read the whole thing yet, but I looked took a little bit. Um, so last, uh, could you tell people like uh, where to find you, where to find your book? Absolutely, it's called Inside Private Prisons: An American Dilemma in the Age in the Age of Incarceration, and uh, the book can be found at independent bookstores, Amazon, um, Barnes and Noble, and um, I can be found at the Brennan Center for Justice. Thanks so much to Lauren Brooke Eisen for taking the time to talk to me about private prisons. Her book, Inside Private Prisons, is available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. Joel and I will be back next week with an episode about plea bargaining. The Decarceration Nation podcast is available on iTunes and wherever podcasts are aggregated. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week.